pre-dropped here, no doubt. Yeah, pre-dropped. Whoa, that thing came out sideways. Drove it into the penalty area. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that was a shank. It's hard to believe watching this. It made an unbelievable bogey in the drop zone. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, particularly to our friends from the north up in Canada. Dylan DeCher is back on the drop zone. Dylan, how are you, buddy? It is good to be here. It's good to be back. And I mean, I'm A, just invigorated after watching um, this this incredible Canadian Open finish and also just dying laughing watching this video of Adam Hadwin getting truck sticked by the security <laughs> jacked <guy>. up <laughs> uh if you well i mean maybe you haven't seen it literally right now while we're recording it but i guarantee by the time you listen to this you will have seen this video more than enough times um wow but no it's good sean it's good to be back i was off last week i was on family vacation in ireland which was amazing splendid uh the timing probably could have been a little bit better as far as news in the golf world goes um but you know there was a flip side to that which i guess we'll get into which is this is one of those stories where uh we knew well it seems like the the world kind of knew just enough to be dangerous and uh so there was a lot of a lot of a lot of mystery out there a lot of people guessing things a lot of assumptions being made a lot of people filling the void with whatever oh, yeah. whatever version of the story they wanted to see, uh, and, that, and I'm sure that continues right yeah. now. Whatever whatever thoughts come to their head, yeah, we're gonna do a little bit of that. We're gonna we're gonna update people on the status of the PGA Tour, um, DP World Tour, Live Golf, Saudi PIF, merger partnership deal, framework agreement, all that stuff. Um, hopefully it'll be just as entertaining as, as James and I were last week, but first we're going to start with the Canadian open. Um, and you know, Dylan, I was actually talking to Nick Taylor just a couple of days ago in Ooh, Canada. Little, I was cool talking with you. his, yeah. Hey, yeah. Super cool for me. Uh, hanging out with his caddy, David Markle, who, um, he, uh, he probably has the best, like Canadian accent of all these guys. Um, but the, the result of the tournament is probably the most I've laughed at a Sunday finish in a very long time. If you thought things were weird a couple weeks ago when Emiliano Grigio's ball is trickling down the aqueduct in, in Fort Worth, like we had like four of those things happen as the Canadian open, uh, turned into absolute mayhem. Um, in a playoff between Nick Taylor and Tommy Fleetwood, but Nick Taylor wins. And that's why it was cool that I was hanging with him and his caddy just the other day. Um, for like in the most basic sense, it's like a great thing for Nick Taylor's season. Um, that's selling it way, 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 way short. He is the first Canadian to win the Canadian open in 69 years, I believe, uh, or 69 iterations of it. it might be 72 years and, um, there were a couple of years off. Uh, so that's a big deal. Uh, it was the coolest thing to have a kind of a home and away thing that we see in pro golf. We don't often see that, um, where one side of, or where the entire fan base is so avidly cheering for one person. Um, it, it creates a pretty insane arena. And so that's what we saw. Um, just trying to think of all the dumb things that happened. Tommy Fleawood hit a, uh, it is three wood into the bleachers during the playoff, uh, getting an insane level of uh, TIO relief. People up in the bleachers were taking selfies with the golf ball. Uh, we saw a fan in jorts uh, bringing a fl- the ninth flag back to the ninth hole because we needed to use that hole for the third hole in the playoff. Uh, and then we saw Nick Taylor pour in a 72-foot putt uh, for a walk-off eagle in the fourth playoff hole. Uh, he did a bat flip with his putter, <laughs> and then Adam Adwin came sprinting on with champagne and got jacked up by a security guard and not just, like, hit, but, like, dri- driven back into the ground. Like, he looked like a little swing back out there running a screen pass, getting absolutely laid out by an, all- an outside linebacker. Um, did I miss anything in terms of what happened on this crazy Sunday? 
For me, the moment that did it was really just the the fans taking the selfie with Tommy Fleetwood's golf ball in the bleachers. I mean, that was just like. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think they were saying, they were like, "All right, can we pick it up?" And Jim Nance on the broadcast was like, "Can you pick it up? You're just taking photos with it." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because I guess it's an appropriate way to finish a week that started in such a uh, solemn, serious existential crisis type manner uh with the future of the game in question the 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 geopolitics of professional golf and where that intersects with uh everything else to finish just reminded on this goofy ass par five uh with just a a series of strange things happening yeah i mean you had guys hitting irons off the tee hitting irons into bunkers laying up into the rough um, just a series of bizarre circumstances, but to end, yeah, I guess to end with something so pure as this, right? Long putt made by a Canadian. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, beyond all the goofy stuff was this incredible storyline, this incredibly passionate moment, uh, this really cool moment for Canadian golf with a bunch of, of the sons of Canadian golf there to take it all in too. Yeah. Uh, so Nick Taylor, first nine holes of his week, three over par, not good vibes, not playing good golf. Uh, and you know, as for his season, like his best finish was a number of months ago. And I just think that he, he certainly was working his way through some stuff beginning of the week and then something flips and he plays the rest of the tournament in 20 under par and then fights off Tommy Fleawood. Um, it, it was interesting this week had a bunch of stuff early that we're going to get to Tuesday and Wednesday were like the weirdest two practice round days I've ever seen at a PGA tour event. And then like Wednesday wore off into Thursday and it's like, okay, well we have to focus on the golf now. There's not a whole lot of stuff that we know. We got to, we got to focus on what we do know. We know when people are teeing off and we know, you know, who's making birdies and who's making bogeys. And so Corey Connors shoots five under on day one and the mood in on the course in the place kind of is like, all right, like, you know, what would be really cool is if a Canadian won this tournament, this, this tournament has been through some shit. It had, it went up against live golf last year, the launch of live golf. And so players at the Canadian open in 2022 were just only being asked about an event happening across the pond. That's a tough scene. This week had what happened, uh, in terms of chaos, uh, you know, the clubhouse has to, maintain uh the dining area so that there can be an emergency players meeting and then a pack meeting and then you know the delaware mafia meeting even into the night on on tuesday night all these weird things are happening to the canadian open and last year was kind of rescued in a way for rbc um when rory defeated jt and tony finau uh that was a raucous scene and this year it was kind of like how how is the Canadian Open <laughs> going to respond? And one of their native sons making a 72-foot eagle putt in a playoff, in the fourth hole of the playoff on Sunday night, is the stuff of fantasy. Like, you, you couldn't script it any better. Um, and, you know, that scene, that scene that you're talking about, Corey Connors, Adam Hadwin... Mike Weir drinking a beer off the 18th. Drinking green. a Sapporo, like, by the way. I was like, can we get this man a Molson? <laughs> can we f- can we find this guy a Canadian beer? They're singing, but they're singing the national anthem every that, time someone walks into the 14th tee, and we got Mike Weir. I guess, yeah. I, I guess, support you know international team captain. That, so, shout out to him. That is exactly the scene that I saw at the Phoenix Open this year when Nick Taylor was dueling down the stretch with John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler and uh, guys just kind of flock, especially these Canadian guys, they flock in each other's direction. They are like an interesting band of brothers. They play practice rounds together every single week. Um, And it's not this, Oh yeah, we're from Canada. So we love each other. They are like legitimately best friends out there. Um, And, I think all of their caddies are Canadian. I could be wrong, um, but Mackenzie Hughes' caddy is a Canadian. Corey's caddy is a Canadian. Uh, Nick Taylor's caddy is a Canadian. So it is, they are a conglomerate, I guess. And so it, it was a win for all of them in a certain way. 
tell me about what you know about Nick Taylor, the the individual. Um, you've spent a little bit more time around him yeah. than than I have. Well, he's from a long way from Toronto. Like he is from Western Canada, from Vancouver, BC area. Um, Nick Taylor was at one point the number one amateur in the world, 2009. Uh, and he went to University of Washington. You know who his roommate was at the U- University of Washington? That one, Joel Damon. Joel Damon and Nick Taylor. Um, I think, you know, Joel's Joel's story is very interesting, and he kind of, for lack of a better term, like flamed out of his college career, but he stayed very close to Nick Taylor, and I think Nick Taylor's like peak as an amateur kind of spurred Joel on honestly I think Joel would tell you that so anyway Nick has western Canada roots western America roots um this year at the Phoenix Open when he finishes solo second behind Scotty Scheffler like that was an event that he probably wouldn't have played in unless it was elevated because he's never played well at TPC Scottsdale he just it doesn't doesn't fit his eye you know but it was a windy week he absolutely balled out beats John Rahm in the final group and has kind of started this this uh, it's it, like renaissance sounds like too grand of a term, but he had his amateur peak where he became the best amateur on the planet and kind of carried himself like it. And now he's starting to kind of get back to carrying himself with like a ton of confidence. He's going to jump up, I'm sure, to top 40 in the world now. And he's going to be involved with every designated event next year. Like he is he's peaking and um, personality wise, he's like super chill you saw him down the the stretch in the playoff he's kind of like stone face mm-hmm. just like nothing is rattling this guy right now he fist pumped that that ball into the center of the cup um to make it into that the playoff was so right cool it was cold-blooded uh, set- that i mean because he'd hit a uh yeah i mean interesting sequence there on 18 where his his approach shot finished next to the sprinkler head he could have tried to get relief he didn't always massive respect for that hit a little bit of a mediocre chip and uh, then, yeah, made mm-hmm. that putt, just dripped it right in the middle, a big breaking putt, and he had his fist pumping when it was about, you know, a foot out and then uh, and walked it right in. That was awesome. This is going to sound cliche to people who probably follow the clo- the, the tour closely, but um, the other thing about Nick is he's just – he's an N64 Mario Kart aficionado and, um, no, you know – I think people know that, but I actually asked him about it last year and he's like, no, we, we played every single day, uh, time trials. He's not like a, um, uh, grand prix kind of guy where you're racing against all the characters. Oh, he's just trying he's just to, a... to absolutely time trial it mm. as fast as you can do three laps around. I said, you know, if I don't know, I told him I don't prefer that style, but that's how they like, you know, they made drinking games out of that in college. So in that way he is much like you and me. Um, but yeah, insane win for him. Uh, I particularly love the bat flip with the putter. Like he got that thing out of his hands real quick and then just started jumping around with his caddy. Uh, the only thing that you could do when, uh, when you make a 72 foot Eagle putt, right? Yeah. And thank goodness. Right. Because that playoff was starting to lose a little bit of its mojo. <laughs> Uh, we had a couple of holes in a row with sort of missed putts. Was it though? Was it though? I feel like it was. I feel like I it was starting not. to I like. Guess it hey, was like, there are Canadians sprinting all over the property. Yeah, it kind of had like a, a little bit of a two a.m. energy to it, where like you know the the party continued <laughs> a little bit longer than it was supposed to, and uh, you know we hadn't we didn't really have a full plan for this part of the evening. People were. <laughs> I mean, you have weird. to wonder if they had cut off alcohol sales probably i guess but people seem plenty tuned up anyway Mm. um gosh what a moment i mean the the intrigue of the playoff was jacked up because it was tommy fleetwood and because of the way he got into the playoff too right i want to talk about that a little bit because fleetwood you had nick taylor doing his thing on 18 and then on 17 and 18 i should say because uh, he poured in that putt on 17, then made the birdie putt on 18. But then Tommy Fleetwood stuffs it at 16. He makes birdie at 17. And then he plays a really bad 18th hole. Really 
If you really wanted, bad. like, if you had to choose one player on tour to hit like two consecutive four irons and absolutely pure them both, he's probably going to be within your first five picks. Um, and he, he hit the weakest, wipiest four iron uh, off the tee on 18 and then had a chance to lay up and then kind of wipes across that one and uh, makes ultimately, like, I, I guess what may, has to be called a good five from where he was from. Um, but definitely concerning. Um, there were some concerning shots. Yeah, here's the thing. It's one thing to make a five on that hole. It is a par five. It's an awkward hole. Uh, you know, it is what it is. Not everyone's going to make a four. It averaged about a 4.4 on Sunday. But there were a couple of things that you sort of have to take issue with. The f- Yeah, you miss the fairway, whatever. That'll happen with an iron. It's not good by any means, but there you are. The first mistake seems to be not going for the green or not trying to like punch something up. I mean, you kept seeing Nick yeah. Taylor do it. He was just even the the shot that led to his winning eagle putt was just a low running fairway wood tumbling. And uh, you know, I don't know if Tommy just didn't feel like he could get the right club on the ball there. Um, I think they said he he didn't have a three wood. He had a mini driver. But there's something that he could have done to try to chase it up near the front of the green. Because it's one thing to make a five, but it's another thing to not even have a chance at making a four. Uh, and instead, he just did this sort of mm-hmm. like quick, somewhat hurried layup shot. And uh, just had a horrible, horrible miss. I get it. I mean, I hate laying up. It's a really awkward thing. You don't have a clear target. You, But, you know, I'm, I'm not on the... PJ tour. I'm not, I'm not playing to secure my first PGA tour title of his career. So anyway, the way that he navigated his way to the playoff was first really impressive, then really tough and, uh, ended up kind of being heartbreaking on 18 and then just having his heart broken, you know, again, when, when Nick Taylor's putt went in. Yeah. <clears throat> Look, if we had to I love Tommy Fleetwood and that's why I would be uh, predisposed to go easy on him as opposed to, to criticizing him. But if you, if you just turned your television on when Tommy took to the 18th tee, your, your opinion of Tommy Fleetwood, it's like that guy did not want to win. That guy was a little, he was a little concerned about the nerves going on in his head. He, he had, he plays the 18th the way he did. And then, um, this, I believe it would be the second playoff hole. Uh, he hits that wipey three wood into the stands. Um, he made some extremely clutch putts. I believe he led the tournament in putting this week. So like that was working for him, but the full swing, what he is known for being the ball striker, he was not putting that on display in the playoff, uh, nor in the finish to 18 in regulation. And then ultimately he is, he is a little bit done in by hooking an iron into the, the bunker on 18 the last time they played it and so like it wasn't a it was not clean ball striking from who we know to be one of the you know premier ball strikers out there which has to be a bit of a nerves thing yeah I mean no question he, he wants it really bad I mean I don't know if he's gonna speak to the media afterwards but uh yeah we went we basically went live right after the tournament finished it's tough to have another close call it's tough that he's been in in close calls on the PGA tour before it's not to say he hasn't won big tournaments. There are very big tournaments on the DP world tour. Um, he has won several events on the, you know, in Europe, <laughs> but it's got to hurt to not close out this one, uh, because he was right there. He was yeah. on a hole that where everyone's making birdie and he didn't make birdie. And, uh, and then, you know, he still might've extended the thing another hole. If Nick Taylor's, putt doesn't go in it was the longest putt made by anyone in the field all week by 14 feet <laughs> shout out justin ray for that one it was the longest putt of nick taylor's career of his career anywhere on the pga tour yeah. ever wow 72 feet so cool cool moment you can't you can't script it any better that's like it's such a cliche but you you could not script it any better for Canadian to pour one in from forever away and win the Canadian Open. Um, 
I can't wait to see Nick Taylor in L.A. I'm excited to talk to him. I can't wait to see Adam Hadwin. Was like. He's doing all right. <laughs> yeah, let's. So, um, is there anything more to say about that? How weird that was? Well, there's plenty to say about it, but I think that in the interest of looking forward, we kind of also have to to look at the bigger picture here because Sean until Thursday morning, I don't think anyone was thinking at all about this golf tournament. And uh, I mean, maybe, maybe really until today, people weren't thinking all that much about this golf tournament because, well, look, you were there, you went to Canada, you've been across the border and um, yeah. you went up there because suddenly there was something surprising happening in the world of golf. And I guess, how do you want to do this? Do you want to run through what we actually know, what the facts actually are up to this point? Do you want to do you want to tell well, me what the feeling was like we, on the ground? I think we like where are we at? Yeah. So the last drop zone that anybody listened to was an immediate reaction recorded by James Colgan and I. You know, middle of the day on Tuesday. Uh, I think we did a decent job covering what we knew at the time, but there there have been things uncovered since then. So let's just roll back to when that drop zone ended. Um, I booked a flight to go up to Toronto, the first flight I could get, which unfortunately was not a nonstop flight. So I went through Detroit and I went to uh, Oakdale Golf and Country Club immediately Wednesday morning. And uh, who did I find? But the first man off the tee in a pro-am on the 10th hole was Rory McIlroy. And so I walked with Rory for a couple different holes um, didn't talk to him at all, but just was trying to, to gauge his mood because if anyone had been, if anyone had the right to use the word betrayed, I really think it was probably him, <laughs> um, him being, I know this is the wrong terminology, but like being a mascot at, at points for the PGA tour, a talking, f- uh, front man, um, taking a lot of the points that mattered to the tour at large and putting them out in his press conferences. And so I wanted to see Rory's spirit. Um, I felt like he was in good spirits, you know? And um, so he was kind of using golf, using the pro-am to kind of try to get back to a a sense of sanctuary um, because everything else he had been doing was, um, I don't know, it was was thrown into upheaval. Um, You know, there was the players meeting on Tuesday uh, 4 p.m. Jay Monahan flies in from New York after doing press after the the news breaks, um, and there's a pretty rowdy collection of players, about a hundred players, waiting for him in the dining room of the clubhouse. Uh, he stands in front of all of them at this uh, wooden lectern, and it gets heated. Um, I'm sure people who listen to this have read about it already, but. Um, it sounded like a lot of people in the room at first were really pissed off because Jay, you lied to us. (laughs) You are not being truthful. I don't know how I can trust you moving forward. It was kind of, that was the kind of collective idea in the room. And I think every player was entitled to feel that way. Now the meeting probably got out of hand in a way, one way or another. Um, but there were plenty of opinions shared. Harry Higgs is very keen on elevating the idea of player equity, right? In this new company that is going to exist, uh, that, in, that it merges the commercial operations of all these tours. Um, Harry Higgs wants equity. I think a lot of players love that idea, but we don't know if that'll be the case or not. Um, Grayson Murray stands up and says, Jay, you need to resign. <laughs> now, Grayson, um, I wouldn't, I would, I think I can confidently say he is not the most respected player on tour. And from a few people that I talked to, look, the talking points that he brought in to the uh, players meeting maybe weren't uh, elicited in as smooth of a fashion as someone like Maverick McNeely. Um, But he was fired up and a lot of people were fired up. And so some people really appreciated Grayson standing up and saying that. Um, from what I know, like Kyle Westmoreland stood up and basically said, like, as a military man, this is screwed up, Jay, and like sat back down very quickly. And like that, like really kind of w- weighed heavy on the room. Yeah. I mean, um, what's the rebuttal so, like, to the, that? The rest, you know? the... <laughs> yeah. The, and that's one thing that Jay Monahan is going to have to deal with and may struggle with is answering 
tough questions slash statements. Um, the, uh, the meeting was followed by, you know, about 20, 25 minutes with media, which was actually a pretty somber, um, thing. Like the media were all kind of like, okay, so what do you have to tell us, Jay? And so it was not nearly like, not, not that we have a right to be heated, but, um, it was probably the best part of his day when he had to explain things to people. Then there was a PAC meeting. The PAC is a 16-person uh, players-only group. Um, it was a virtual meeting that Jay was on, Jimmy Dunn was on, Ed Hurley he was on. These are the people that brokered this deal. And these guys were very curious about, okay, if this is the future, how the hell do we get Brooks Kepka back on this PGA Tour? What's going to happen to Brooks? Is he going to serve a suspension? Is he going to have to pay a fine? And it's not just Brooks, but it's Brooks, it's Phil, it's DJ, Camp Smith, all these guys, because this is a for-profit entity moving forward. The for-profit entity is better, it is more valuable with Brooks Kepka involved. It just is. And I think the players, the rank-and-file guys, the less marketable, less promotional people of the PGA Tour they realize, okay, if this thing's for profit and we're all going to probably get a, a cut out of it or we're going to benefit from it, those guys got to come back. How the hell do we do it? And that remains to be seen. It will probably come on an extremely um, managed case-by-case basis by a committee. And then the final meeting, as I understand it from Tuesday night, was largely with the group of dudes who met in Delaware to kind of say, hey, we're the top players on the PJ Tour. We need to get together and play each other more often. We need to have synchronized schedules. We need to have essentially elevated and designated events. Uh, that, as I understand it, was the final meeting, and Rory got out of, you know, he got off the court or away from the course at like 9.30 Tuesday night, shows up at 7 a.m. for a pro-am, and then does, does media, um, has a press conference, he said it was the most uncomfortable he has been in the last 12 months. Um, he didn't look uncomfortable, but he certainly struggled at times to give a very straightforward or straight look ahead. And it kind of, you could see him like wincing as he was giving some answers. I think the toughest thing for Rory has to be the fact, not just that he became sort of the spokesman for the tour. But the fact that he put himself out there to bring these players together, who players who are not inclined to give up sort of individual freedoms for the greater good. The fact that he got up there in front of yes. everyone, the fact that he took this leadership role, not without criticism. I mean, he's been getting crushed by, you know, some portion of the golf community for months and months, you know, for whatever, talking too much or or, or getting too aggressive or whatever, taking a stand. And then to have this rug pulled out from under him, it sucks, man. It's got to just, it's got to suck. And I think people understand that this was not Rory's decision. I think people can feel for Rory. I think a lot of people, you know, respect that at least Rory is, has taken a stand for, for what he believes is the right thing. And they know that he is not the guy that was concealing any of this from his fellow players. But that lack of trust and what is now going to happen, um, you know, it would just make the whole thing feel useless and pointless. And I'd be really frustrated if I was him. Sure. Now, all right, let's let's continue on. Like, I, I, I was pretty dialed into Rory early yep. Wednesday and then I just went out to the, the driving range and um, decided like I'm just going to sit here and like kind of see who comes up to me right because um, they're all having these conversations and I'm you know eavesdropping in on stuff and I just found it to be very funny and reminiscent of only a few times in the past where players will seek out media on the grounds to talk there's always a bit of a buffer, especially on the driving range where they kind of want to be in and grind on the range and they don't want to be asked questions because as media members, we are the question people. We're always trying to get something from them. Uh, the, the communication is off in a one-way direction where they're giving us answers and we're the guys asking questions. And so rarely has it been, 
hey, Sean, what do you think about all this? <laughs> uh, but it was that was the case in Scotland at the Scottish Open um, when there was the original uh, letting live guys back into the tournament. That was really weird for PGA Tour players, so they were asking me for my opinion. Sean, do you know anything about this? Um, the only other time would have been in Tokyo when players are like, really curious to see a familiar face and see what I was up to. And then there was this week where it felt like, holy cow, Sean, you got a lot to write about. A couple of people came up and tell me and they were telling me they had no problem talking about the players meeting, no problem talking about what their opinions are on player equity. Should Jay keep his job? It was just a very interesting moment because um, not often are the players so interested in sharing their, their opinions, like to ultimately relatively strangers and, and um, so that was kind of my takeaway from Wednesday. Um, but ideas are bouncing off the walls. And that's what happens when there are so few details shared. And one thing I would, I would really like to get to here, Dylan, is that those ideas, they kind of carried on into Thursday. And then they started to kind of dissipate. And there was less and less conversation about it on Friday. But suddenly, Jimmy Dunn goes on a little bit, just a mini media tour. Jimmy yes. Dunn. <sighs> The, the Wall Street man, the, the guy who at one point banned essentially live golfers from uh, the Seminole <laughs> member, pro member event, the guy who has deeply intimate ties uh, in, into how he was affected as uh, just know so many, know so many families and victims of the 9-11 attacks and is deeply aware of the connection between Saudi Arabia as a country and uh, and the 9-11 attackers. Um, so Jimmy Dunn goes on a little bit of a mini media tour. He talks with Michael Rosenberg of Sports Illustrated and actually starts kind of laying out details as he believes it to be the case with the uh, essential deal that they hope to, to reach with the Saudi PIF. And he goes on Golf Channel and basically explains why he can rightfully morally everything except money from the Saudis and how he has to like move forward. Um, and then he tells ESPN that there will in fact be player equity in this new for-profit company. And I just found it to be very, very interesting, Dylan, that Jay Monahan could share so few concrete details with players on Tuesday afternoon, evening, and suddenly Jimmy Dunn could share so um, varied, seemingly concrete details with media 36, 48, 72 hours later. That doesn't equate for me. And that it's not like, I'm not thinking conspiracy-wise. I'm just putting it out there that this tour has struggled to communicate at large with players. Players are finding out this information on Twitter. Um, it's not the first time that players have found things out on social media in the last you know, six months. And that's really wearing thin. And so if there's going to be a trickle out of details via interviews like this with Jimmy Dunn, players are going to need to know this stuff a little bit earlier than they find it on sportsillustrated.com and on ESPN.com. I will always be in favor of media kind of being the ones to explain this and, and whittle it down to something that's comprehensible for the viewer and the golf fan. But it doesn't make sense to me that Jay Monahan can't share a lot of these details that Jimmy Dunn is sharing only a couple days later. It gives the vibe of a group that doesn't know the answers that doesn't know the future that doesn't have specifics. <laughs> yeah. It gives the vibe that, uh, these guys are making it up as they go along, that they don't really know what the future looks like. I mean, there's a couple, might be true. A couple enormous questions are like one who's in charge. That's probably the biggest question for me. Uh, <laughs> is it Jay? <laughs> Who is, is it Yasir? year? You got an answer? No, I, I, I don't have an answer. No, I, I think that I think it's too soon to say, right? It's It depends who you listen to. I mean, the, the I PIF think the hasn't idea said of who's anything in charge so far. will actually change. <laughs> I think it's going to change over time. I think right now there are going to be more PGA Tour-focused minds on the committee of this new company. There will be Jay Monahan, there will be Ed Herlihy, there will be Jimmy Dunn, and there will be Yasser. 
and you know whoever else joins them it's going to keep a voting majority on the side and interests of the PGA Tour's current uh, structure. And that would give me uh, enough evidence to believe that Jay will hold some power for uh, the immediate future. That said, two years from now, someone brings forth new capital that the Saudis have first right of refusal. Let's say it's a billion dollars in private equity. Uh, let's say Phil Knight and Nike are getting really interested in this. The Saudis have first right of refusal. Like, do we want Phil Knight, uh, noted liberal, like probably PGA Tour supported person to suddenly bring on a billion dollars to add to this thing? Or do we just want to put it up ourselves and kind of control a little bit of the pie ourselves? Uh, if that's what the market is deciding that someone like Nike could put up a billion dollars, well, you know what? We'll match it and and then we'll add to it. Like that can all that will always be probably good for the players, but in terms of the power, uh, I think there's a lot that can still be held by the Saudis. And so I feel like it, the power spectrum will actually kind of uh, it will be changing. I think it'll be ever ever fluid. You get the sense from reading, I guess different reports that different people have the power. Um, I mean, if the lesson from this was that money, talks money rules money is the sort of the answer to everything if you continue to follow money as the answer and money as the king the group with the money has the power and it's pretty clear who that is i guess my overall takeaway and i've been working up a a little column around along these lines is like everyone comes off here looking bad everyone looks dumb that's that's what I kind of kept thinking about as I was cruising around Ireland thinking about, you know, what does this mean? Big picture. Eventually a lot of people will make money because of this and they will have a lot of money and this will cease to be as um, acute an issue and we won't talk about it as much and it will eventually fade away. But for now, everyone looks pretty dumb. I would say that the most obvious you think Yasser looks no, dumb? he's the exception. I was going to have a big reveal at the end of this monologue <laughs> to get to that point. but Sorry. Oh, I've ruined it. Sorry. Jay looks the most obviously dumb. He acknowledged himself, basically. Yeah, I look silly. I look like a hypocrite. I know that people are going to tell me that. <laughs> I mean, the, the, you just you cannot be trotting out 9-11 victims' families and showing support for them and sort of a, implying that you wouldn't do a deal with the Saudis and then turn around and you, that same person, do that deal. That doesn't look good. Uh, And there's just no two ways about it. Jimmy Dunn doing a real 180 on the stuff that he has said. He He has been an incredibly impactful member of, you know, the, the families of people affected by 9-11 have been helped by Jimmy Dunn like he has done a lot of incredible things in his life but in terms of orchestrating this deal the way he has talked about it it just doesn't all square up with what he's said and now what he has done uh the players that stayed on the PGA Tour they look and feel dumb Xander Shoffley talked to the Sunday Times he talked about feeling you know betrayed and and shafted I believe was the word that he used so guys that could have taken the money but chose not to or got convinced not to, they feel dumb. Rory, we've already talked about why he feels dumb because he stood in front of a group of of his peers and told them that this would be the future and got them to buy into something, and that now must feel pretty fraudulent. Even Tiger Woods looks powerless throughout all of this because he, through his own volition or through encouragement, took a stand on this and that ended up just feeling yeah, like a power play since. more than anything. I mean, he hasn't even, yeah, he hasn't even chimed in in the last week. And then I would argue that the, the guys that rode hard for live, the guys that really talked up that product is the future. I'm not sure that they should be they look declaring victory in the way that, that some of them seem to be, because I think that what you end up looking like is just pawns. You look like, you look like you're you're sort of paid stooges (laughs) for this thing that was actually just sort of a trojan horse to get 
Saudi what it wanted, which was, you know, either a seat at the table or sort of ownership of um, the PGA Tour and the professional golf ecosystem. We'll see which one of those phrases is more accurate, ownership or a seat at the table. So, yeah, I think those guys look kind of dumb, too, for 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 saying something that really wasn't true. I mean, Liv was has been a focus of of Yasir for sure. He's been super hands on. Uh, you talk to anyone in, involved with Liv and, and they will tell you how involved he's been, how integral he's been, how 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 much of his vision that league is. But at the end of the day, it seems pretty clear that that in its current form could get scrapped pretty quickly if it meant being part of, of pro golf. So yes, at the end of the day, he is kind of the only one that doesn't look like he's been played. Um, I think in poker, it's pretty easy for the guy with the, the biggest stack of chips to look like he's the best player. And yeah. uh, that's kind of what happened here. Of There's course. a few other exceptions. There's a few other people that I I think have not looked dumb throughout, but uh, but there's a yeah. lot of people that come yeah. out of this um, in a tough way. All right. Let's continue a little bit of the the reported nuggets uh, that you know. I don't blame everyone for not um, reading every single thing on the internet about this, especially on Twitter.com because there are takes flying left and right. But the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times did some, uh, I would say, important reporting uh, and published some, some really good stuff over the weekend. Um, a major part of that is that the PGA Tour was getting siphoned. And this is my, my biggest takeaway is that none of this was working. Pro golf was not working as it was, you know, if we look at what it's been in 2023, it's, it's not working to its, its full capacity. It is, this is not, um, greater than the sum of its parts. What pro men's pro golf was, you had an organism, um, that is a certain size. And then you had a leech on that organism and the organism is the PGA tour and live golf was a leech. It was siphoning something from the PGA Tour. What that something is um, probably is different amounts to different people, but the leech was like locked on to the PGA Tour. It took Phil Mickelson, it took Brooks Kepka, it took Cam Smith, major champion, Bryson DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson. It was, it was sucking some blood from the PGA Tour, and the PGA Tour was not doing as well without it. Its best response to try and kick this leech was to use some of its reserve money, was to fight back in court with very expensive lawyers, uh, was to boost its purses and go to all of its very faithful sponsors and say, what do you got for us? Open up the coffers. We're going to do things differently. And the the road on which Jay Monahan w- and was pushing the tour was just dicey, man. Like it was, it was proving to be... Uh, there was proving to be a little bit more liability out there than he had previously thought. And so what's interesting, though, is that just because there is a leech that is benefiting and it's sucking from the organism doesn't mean that the leech was even really benefiting in this sense. Doesn't mean that the Saudis were actually proving to be um, such great financiers of a fantastic idea. Because you know what? Live Golf's ratings were so bad that they were not reporting them anymore. <laughs> like, remember that, people. Remember that. If you're trying to talk about look about the popularity of this thing, it wasn't popular. They went to Australia and had people in hordes because you know what? They haven't taken Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson, Cam Smith to Australia ever. And so you know what happened the next week after it was banana scenes down in Adelaide? They went to Singapore because they had to, and the scenes sucked. No one was there. Nobody watched it. Like, Live Golf was not working. So you can't tell me that just because it exists and it has the Saudi backing, that one, the Saudis were doing something that was smart and that Yasser only is winning in this scenario, or that Phil Mickelson was even making a great choice in only playing his golf outside of majors on this crazy little tour that 
No brands are going out of their way to step in and buy. You know what? You know, you know how much room there was for private equity to enter the golf space and, and buy up live golf teams? So much. There were 12 teams unbought, Dylan. 12 franchises that people are saying like, oh, their valuation's through the roof. Their valuations weren't worth shit because no one was actually buying them and owning them and, and trying to get other people to, to buy their stake in. So... Nothing, nothing about pro golf in 2023 was actually working to its fullest capacity. And I think um, that's another thing here is that Jay Monahan saw all of this as tension. And the, the, the further along it got, it just got harder and harder for him to see, okay, hey, money's flying out of our bank account. And we're really battling a, an unlimited bank account. And they may have a fraudulent little golf tour, but... <laughs> We have, we have, by comparison, a fraudulent bank account. So it wasn't working. That's my biggest take on it all. I'd like people to know, first-time listeners to the Drop Zone, that Sean is not like a, not a live basher. That's not really like his, that has not been his thing. He's been, I would say, more open-minded than most since the beginning about the possibility for live to succeed. And look, maybe it still will. Maybe there's a world where live is going to continue and it's going to be this whole new thing and it's going to be a thing. Um... My curiosity is, like, what if Live doesn't happen? How integral was Live as a disruptive force, as a Trojan horse, to getting this Saudi investment? Because even a couple of years ago, maybe it was just, I guess, just last year, you had Rory talking about, you know, I could see the Saudi money getting involved if it was injected into the ecosystem keith pelly said something similar uh, on the european on the uh, yeah european tour obviously they used to be allied with the saudi international they had a, a event there so what happens if live doesn't happen is there a way that this you know theoretical amount of money that we're expecting to see injected into this new company is there a way that that what 10 figures how big is a billion is there a way that a 10-figure Saudi uh, injection comes to the PGA Tour without Liv? I don't think so. Um, now, you've certainly reported on this, but there's this thing called the Premier Golf League that existed. Uh, essentially, an idea for team golf uh, and private equity to enter the, the pro golf space. It was headed up by Andy Gardner. It was also headed up by certain people that eventually helped push Live Golf forward. So the idea has been kicked around for a while. And at one point, there was Saudi investment going to go into the Premier Golf League. And there was too much of a stench, if you will, that Andy Gardner was like, no, we need to move forward without the Saudi money. Um, and the Saudis got disinterested in themselves. And so... I think Live Golf was the perfect tornado of like, we got Phil Mickelson, we got Greg Norman, we probably get Bryson DeChambeau, who really, 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 really thinks he's a future thinker. <laughs> um, and it, it was it was a kind of just a perfect storm, uh, is the way I see it. And I do think it was absolutely necessary for all of this investment to this extent to happen. Why? Because Andy Gardner's Premier Golf League, they couldn't get Jay to pick up the phone. Jay Monahan was insistent on ignoring this stuff. It was, it was first bubbling up, Dylan. Do you recall when this was happening? The first time it really got real and started to to become headlines. Which part? It was March twenty March twenty twenty. Oh yeah, I remember when well. The it Premier was Golf the, it was League the Players Championship started. that that uh, well that you know that that's when the Saudi element really was getting addressed. Um. I mean, right before COVID mm -hmm. shut down the whole thing. Yeah. And so COVID bought Jay Monahan some time because Jay saw a, he saw a rival forming and COVID shut down the world, shut down everything, shut down communications of a lot of sorts. Jay didn't pick up the phone to a lot of things. This was kind of his third chance. Like I would say the first one was like, uh, the first time he passed, right, was like a fastball that flew by him. The next one was like 
oh, a tough curveball, like, oh, we're going to try and fight it, but no, we don't really have the money to. This was his third opportunity, and he decided to, like, swing for the fences. And um, it remains to be seen, like, if it's going to be a pop-up or if it's actually going to be a home run. Um, But not often do people in positions of power get third chances. And I think... I think Jay felt like he needed to take this chance. Let's talk about messaging for a second. If you are, what do you say if you're a live player? What do you say if uh, you're a PGA tour player? What do you say if you're Jay Monahan right now, putting you on the spot? This is a new segment if I'm a, called yeah, putting well, you on the I'm spot. P- <laughs> Sean on the spot. If I'm a PGA tour player, I'm talking to nobody. <laughs> I don't want um well, I'm not I'm not talking to anyone outside of Jay Monahan and Jimmy Dunn. I think it's important for players to bring their opinions to those two men at Hurley he uh in addition to them, but I'm not talking to the media. I'm not talking to even to really like fellow players that I don't really trust. I'm definitely not talking to like live golfers like uh, my uh yeah, we have not mended those what if you have a press uh, breakups necessarily. What if, you, what if you have a press conference? What are you saying to <laughs> Sean Zock, who's asking you a question about uh, this new deal? What do you think about it? Yeah, well, Matt Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. basically said to me at the press conference that he did on Thursday, like, it's just too soon, and I don't really have a lot to say about that stuff. Like, whoever I play against in tournaments – it's always going to be me against the course and you know them against the course and see how it stacks up. He's like, I knew I'd be asked a million and one questions about this stuff, but it's just too soon. Um, he did. I think they are all going to say the guys who are loyal are all going to say it is not fair, nor is it right for those guys who left to come back um, scotch-free. Like there's just, it, it is not fair to us who stayed um, if that's happened. So, and you know what? From everyone I've talked to, it sounds like Jay Monahan does not want those guys back in an easy way either. I think he wants them to serve suspensions, and I think he wants them to to pay fines in a very serious way. He, if all things that he promised, that's kind of what he promised this week. So um, we'll see how that goes. But if I'm a if I'm a tour player, I'm I'm just not talking to media in any concerning way because remember what happened 12 months ago? It was Live Golf launching, players getting suspended. Canadian Open running in, in uh, concurrent to that and Justin Thomas and Rory and everyone responding. That was the war of words. It started up this war of words where one opinion gets swatted at by another opinion. They're going across the Atlantic back and forth and ultimately it leads to this contentious thing where if anyone in the media asks questions, they get swatted down like Brooks Kepka and Colin Morikawa did at Brookline and it just leads to a lot of vitriol going back and forth. And so if you toss out... A, as tour player X that, you know what? My opinion is that they should serve a year and a half suspensions. We'll talk to them in 2025. Sergio's going to get asked about that. And Bryson's going to get asked about that. And Phil's going to get asked about that. And you are essentially putting yourself on a platter to kind of get treated like Rory got treated. And um, it's better probably just to shut their mouths. Now, however, as media, I don't love that mm-hmm. idea, but that's what I would do. If I was a live golfer... I would not do as Martin Keimer did. Martin Keimer essentially said, all those guys who said that they would never take blood money, who never who said they would never take Saudi money, if they really believe that, they better go play the Japan tour, which is basically a little mini victory lap on everything that was said a year ago um, and really conflating two different opportunities, one that was his, which is voluntarily taking the money, and one that would be, say, Rory's, which is having to just continue his life and the, the money's been forced upon you. Um, and if I'm the PJ Tour, I'm not talking to anybody <laughs> until I get all my ducks in a row, but I'm doing it as quick as possible. Jay, you should be spending all of US Open Week in a boardroom with Yasser. You should come out to the Travelers Championship, hold a press conference, and talk about what you have established since. Like, they they need to get like into a boardroom and hammer everything out best that they can and give the world something to talk about that is concrete because he gave us a whole lot of questions this week and 
when players have questions, all they do is ruminate amongst each other. And that kind of leads to angst. It leads to more people calling for your job. And so it needs to happen pretty soon um, before, you know, everyone's patience is lost. I go back to a conversation I had with Patrick Cantley last September, Sean, at the President's Cup, where he sort of doubled down on his unwillingness to take a hard stance on this. Um, here's, here's one of his quotes. He said, a lot of people have been like, nope, not ever going to do it. And then they get irate when you guys ask questions about it. Like I already said, I'm never going to do it. And then you see guys go and do it. I'm surprised by that. Uh, and he said, look, if you've been reading the Eamon Lynch articles, nobody wants that stuff written about them. He was, he was <laughs> seeing this situation coming. Basically he said, look, there's a, there's a, Good chance that at some point the dynamic is going to shift here. The the uh, warring sides are not going to be so simply. It's not going to be so black and white. It's not going to be so obviously one side against the other. And then people might regret some stuff that they've said. And I think that the smartest thing to do up to this point is to stay out of the fray. Uh, to sort of rise above it. I think the people that will have the fewest regrets are going to be those people on both sides. Um, and I think that, mm, yep. I guess going forward, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what my message would be as a PGA Tour player. I think it would be to acknowledge the weirdness of it all. That And yeah, I mean, like you said, probably that you're not going to get that into it or at least not that into it unless it's like a long, more of a long form sit down setting. Like, you know, if you're sitting down on a podcast, if you're coming on the drop zone, you can talk about all the weirdnesses of it and all the subtleties and nuances of, of the decision. And look, to some extent, it feels like the Saudi money is an inevitability. I think that I think it's a little strange to see how many people are so excited about this development and seem so glad to, I guess, see like the PGA tour get what they had coming or something, because I mean, the clearest winners of this was, were the Saudi government. So it's just like a weird, it's a weird thing to see people who mm -hmm. you would expect to be generally like, you know, pro American. I feel like the golf audience is a pretty, patriotic american crowd to see like a, mm -hmm. a not insignificant portion of people be like hell yeah get them um that's an odd thing to me well you know what you know why, why Dylan? Is that? at some point this this whole thing took on not a oh you're wrong to like upend the status quo or you're wrong to leave but there's a lot of people out there who who say, yeah, America, and believe that capitalism is all that matters, that you need, you should be making moves exclusively toward money. More money over there? Why wouldn't I go get some? Um, and just completely sucking all the context <laughs> out from what was an extremely complex debate. Um, and look... I feel like I've said it to you on this podcast in the last year, two dozen times, but anyone who looks at this and explains it away in 25 seconds is doing a huge disservice to everything that was involved. And, um, that will continue to be the case, right? Like anyone who says very simply exactly how Phil Mickelson should be tr treated as he tries to come back to the PJ tour, assuming that's what he wants to do that would just be ignorant of everything that Phil Mickelson did, did a lot of which came out in court, right? Like there's a lot of, uh, redacted and unredacted documents that share that, Hey, you know what? Phil Mickelson was actively recruiting players to join live golf. That's why he got suspended first before anybody else. That's why he went and took, uh, his leave of absence needed just to come away. Phil is, uh, he is implicit in, um, as Rory would say, like damaging the PGA Tour in a sense. So how does he come back? He cannot be treated by people. I don't care who you are as like this champion who left, used all this leverage, ultimately damaged the tour, made a hell ton of money, 
and then comes back and like should be treated like uh he like not like he never left like why why is that right just because he took 200 million dollars does that make it all right is that the the capitalistic point of view that's the way a lot of people think of this and, yeah uh, i think it's just too but simple. i guess the the now the fodder that those people have is like hey everything is a play everything is now a play and that's what you've seen is <laughs> is that's what you've seen from this situation is you know Jay had that whole line of, of legacy, not leverage last year. And now the way that they've been explaining away the timing of this and, and this agreement and this decision is essentially saying, look, we felt like we had the leverage right now and justifying things that way as if look, everything that led up to this point was us establishing leverage over the Saudis to the point where we could make a more favorable arrangement with them the messaging has been incoherent kind of since the beginning of this um but now i guess we are still left with a lot of questions and now it's u.s open week all right well yeah how do we what happens this week can you make a, a prediction on on what actually happens monday tuesday wednesday at Los Angeles Country Club. Well, Sean, it's nice that, you know, throughout all these wars over golf's uh, leagues and governing bodies, we can now unify around around a governing body that all golfers really love, the USGA. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. The, I wrote this in Tour Confidential, which uh, was just going out, but you know, one one way to unify the players would be for the USGA to really just put out a reckless setup, and the players could come together overall, dumping on just how hard the U.S. <laughs> Open was, and how badly they bungled the course, or something like that. A real throwback to you know the problems of 2016 and 17 and 18, uh, before all this live PGA Tour stuff. I think it's going to be interesting to see how much people want to talk about it all. The, it's funny what what makes a major right now in part is just the number of media members that parachute in. I mean, you could, you can relate from your experience at the Canadian open. It's a lot of local media and not that many national media. Um, the U S open is the opposite. There's going to be so many members of the press there. There'll be more people from, uh, you know, New York times, Washington post, LA times, CNN, etc. Um, people from outside the sports and golf space. So there'll be a lot of people poking around, asking questions, press conferences will be more charged, but I think people are largely going to try to stay away from it because they've seen, like we just mentioned, there is more harm than good that comes from addressing it. And I also think, I guess I think the only exception to that will be players that are just too pissed off to resist like Xander Shoffley in this times interview i mean i mentioned i was just mentioning to you before like i could see well i need a different justification for picking xander to win every major but this time i'm like oh this is this is his joker moment here xander has now become radicalized he needed a little fire under him this is going to be that moment and uh he's just going to be an unhinged golfer playing for himself this was the final straw he's like screw everybody here i go this is my tournament i'm the best golfer in the world i thought uh and you mentioned this too i thought that could be rory still um, could be because he because <laughs> he he responded on saturday night um when he jumped you know into nearly the, the lead of the canadian open through 54 holes basically said like you know when i won this event last year it was for a couple things that weren't just for me. And by that, he is implying it was for the PGA Tour. It was for the messaging. It was to triumph in a mini way over Live Golf. And then he said Saturday, he said, but this one would be solely for me. Enough of this crap, me putting myself out there for other people. I'm doing this one for me. And uh, I. it's funny how that actually, if you've been following Rory McIlroy's decade, he kind of used to have a little bit of that fire in him, a little bit of like, no, I'm 
I'm the goat here. I am the best player at this golf course this week. Uh, I'm doing this for me. I am playing up through Phil Mickelson and Ricky yeah. Fowler at the 2015, 2014 PGA Championship. I'm balling out here. Um, his press conferences weren't always as eloquent and weren't always as um, like political or or. Like oh yeah, he put forthcoming, his right? Mouth he so he was asked times. about that used to be Rory's thing. <laughs> when I started covering golf media, that was like Rory McIlroy's brand was like putting his foot in his mouth and saying something that he <laughs> was like later was kind of oh geez. Yeah, the Olympics. Yeah, he was asked, you know, hey, are you are you thinking about going to Rio? You know, uh, uh, it's a great thing to grow the game. And Rory said, I believe it was at Troon. Uh, I can't remember exactly where it took place because he basically said like growing the game ain't my priority dog, <laughs> which is not something he would say today. Uh, and that, that like individualistic fired up Rory, who knows if that makes him a better golfer or not. It definitely doesn't make him a better person. He is a better person than he was back then. Um, but that, that dude could maybe be a little bit of a killer and I wouldn't mind, um, seeing what that does to to his golfing ability are you packed are you ready i've been packed since yesterday wow good on you yeah yeah i've got an earlier flight than you do um well sean i think it's dinner time here i think it's dinner time there and then uh, we've got a couple early morning flights and i think we should check in from the u.s open in a couple days when we know a little bit more what we're talking about from actual lacc what do you think yeah we will we will be on the grounds um starting tomorrow and talking to people and seeing what phil mickelson's facial expressions are seeing if he wants to say anything i imagine maybe tuesday night we'll do a rip roaring podcast probably maybe you know maybe with a coworker of ours who knows but um then you'll catch that tuesday night wednesday morning all the drop zones you can handle see you then Thoughts to Adam Hadwin. Heal up.